G'day everybody, welcome to Wombat Radio. <laughs> um, we're in Manchester, mate. Do you want to intro yourself? Because I don't want to speak on your behalf. I mean, you may have many aliases that people know you by. Very, very many aliases. Yeah. It depends on the context. <laughs> like the bouncer at the door, you know, the side stage. Door bitch. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're in Manchester. Um, we're in my house. Uh, freelance or in Manchester. Working on lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Delving into dance, one of them. Working with Manchester International Festival at the moment on a project that goes live in a couple of weeks. Ooh. Which is exciting. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of a bit of an intro. My work kind of crosses over like socially engaged art to um, academia and research. Do you think there can be art that is providing value that is not socially engaged? Uh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but often, I think some of those arts contexts that are providing value are not necessarily providing value to all the people that are funding those means and mechanisms. Right. So, if you look at arts funding, it's generally a taxpayer. Yes. Um, but then there's also a ticket price. Yes. And that ticket price is often um, prohibitive to those who would otherwise might get a lot out of that space. Yes. Um, also in the UK, you've got um, lotto funding. So a lot of lotto funding goes into arts and the people are often buying their tickets are also the ones that are not necessarily um, attending the events. Uh-huh. Where does the lotto funding go in Australia? I don't know, actually. Because uh. um, that seems like it really aligns with the spirit of uh, you buy a ticket, you could win cash, or you buy a ticket to, say... Uh, contemporary dance show and you could have a life-changing experience but maybe not this time but maybe next time (laughs) yeah i think i think the arrangement here is i think it could be completely wrong but it's still owned by like um private entities but they have to pay a certain licensing fee that becomes the lotto fund and that um uh funds arts and heritage cool kind of things uh, does that your gambling dollar at work? Even does that is that an easier thing to define in a country that hasn't been colonized for a long time? Like when you're preserving and advancing arts and heritage, you can just preserve and advance English arts and heritage, like because you're no longer dealing with the, I don't know the fallout of Roman colonization or something, so you're not worried about actually just advancing the the imperial forces and their platforms and their contexts and their framing. Yes. I mean, you could argue that the funding just goes actually into all colonial institutions here and there's no conversation about post-colonialism. And in opening up those spaces, um, yeah, I mean, class obviously plays a big, yeah. big influence in the UK and in terms of who those spaces are for. Yeah, and even and if they're supposedly open, who feels comfortable to enter into them as well. Yeah, and I think, I think in the UK there's a different set of practices and problems um, within what a lot of those institutions, rec- um, how they're recognised. Right. Uh, you only have to look at some of the big institutions in the UK and see how problematic it is that they still hold 
you know, remains or artifacts that have been stolen from their colonial quests. Yeah, actually, it only hit home to me in a way that I could comprehend um, more than cerebrally when I saw a meme of Indiana Jones, like that screenshot where he's like, that belongs in a museum. I was like, actually, it belongs right where you just took it from to these people who built this place. Yeah, yeah. I went to the British Museum for the first time maybe... It would have been three months ago. Yeah. And there's a shield with a bullet hole in it on display. Wow. And it was a shield taken from Australia. Oh, wow. From um, first arrival, Cook's wow. Landing. Wow. First European arrival. But yeah. Is there someone named in the, in um, the plaque? No. Um, it says, oh, I'll paraphrase it very wrong, but there was something, it was something along the lines of... Uh, Sometimes first contact was tense. <laughs> Something rather, along those lines. Rather than a wave of annihilation. Yeah. Jesus. And then there was a there's another part of the museum that had an exhibition which was called Reimagining Cook. Mm. And it had a whole range of different recollections of oh, Cook. Like like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? Like all different... Well, it was kind of... It was looking at First Nations perspectives okay. and it was a little bit of a critique, but the critique was so veiled in this um, level of politeness that I would say did very, no- it did very little okay. to unpick. Hmm. And so here it is in a in a major institution in the UK. Yeah. I mean, the Natural History Museum only three months ago returned 30 remains of First Nations yeah. people. Um, so the organisations here, I'd say, would have a, have a long way to go in terms of okay. um, decolonising and also just seeing the diversity of voices and um, people within those spaces. Some organisations, of course, are doing it better, like in Australia. How do you... Um Let's talk about class for a second. It's my understanding that that's the that's the one of the neglected aspects of diversity that's in the circles in Australia that I talk about. If I um, gender diversity is high, racial diversity is high, and cultural and ethnic diversity, even language diversity, is kind of high uh, on the agenda. I don't know high in like rates of success, <laughs> but there's there was a great. Um, poster that I saw that was something like American universities where everybody looks different but thinks the same and it seems to me that like the ultimate divider of how to approach the world is your acculturation which comes from class right the, mm. who you're raised around and what what morals they instill in you um, and so I wonder how and I wonder in both directions like, I also want super rich people to come and see my solo in a dirty mm, warehouse and a wharf somewhere, as well as the people that work there, um, rather than just, like, my friends who have ended up poor through choice because they've chosen a career that earns less than another career they could have chosen. Mm. Um so, I guess this is a weird question, but how do we get rich people to come to good art, not just the like state flagship company so that they can get seen in the foyer of it. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, it's a question I don't think anyone has the answer to, to okay. be honest. I think 
there is such a hierarchy in what is considered art or art worth ah. viewing. Ah, ah, okay. I think, yeah. I mean, you see that in Australia. We definitely saw that with Brandis and the whole yeah. arts funding. You yeah. know, the high arts had their funding increased and secured even mm. more so. Mm. So we're talking the operas and the ballets there. Uh, entrenchment. Yes. <laughs> when you had when you had the um, independent artists who I would argue are often creating the uh, more interesting stuff. At the very least, they're bringing alternatives into a strongly manif- enough manifested form that it can be discussed and then that it can extrapolate across um, possibilities of thinking. Absolutely. And the, the field that is also critiquing social structures, mm. uh, agitating for change or wow. at least providing different perspectives and viewpoints yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed to a lot of the major companies. Yeah. Um, and also where the dollar goes further. So far. You know, yeah. like really goes further. But Brandis um, in his his construction and the discussion of that mm. you know that that wasn't the art that he was interested in to the point that that was also the art that was more the hobbyist yeah. lifestyle choice yeah, yeah, as yeah. opposed to the real art that he's going to um en- ent- entertain i guess i don't know i get pretty bored <laughs> <laughs> at, at the high art only because engagement for me is based on at least some small element of surprise. Um, Whether it be pleasurable even, actually. Uh, But if I feel like I know the thing, then... mm, Which which is reassuring, though, to, I guess, somebody somebody in a position that they're trying to maintain constantly, then you want the thing that also maintains... And I think it's, I mean, for me, it's also, uh, there's so many obviously different cultural practices that are out there that are practiced daily that I don't necessarily uh, engage with Mm. personally, Mm. uh, but that other people are engaging with daily that we often forget about. Um, Well, not forget about, but we don't rarefy in the same way. So you know, an art class that's happening down the road where there's 15 people doing watercolour paintings who go on weekly excursions Mm -hmm. and have exhibitions Mm -hmm. and are doing amazing kind of stuff in that space whose work is never going to be seen in one of the major galleries. No, I guess maybe the question comes back again to agitation and I wonder if we could talk about the capacity for dance to agitate uh, because... I don't doubt the capacity for choreography to agitate. I find a lot of choreography pretty agitating, <laughs> but for various reasons. But the capacity for like dance, which somehow I would say dancing is and some kind of emergent experience that comes out of it's more than the sum of the parts of the sound and the body and the movement. There's something else that once a body is dancing and then you can witness it or you can join in and become that dancing body. There can be a uh, momentary taste of transformation or transcendence, which is not in like a trance state level, but that you can be reminded 
that no matter how watertight your intellectual defenses are, there's still this body that just has its own needs to connect and and exist beyond you and is really willing to let go of the need to be right. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Like, when <laughs> dance is... But um, how can it agitate, I guess? Or, like, when have you seen dance that could really... I mean, the flip side of that is that for many people it wouldn't, you know. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, people I'm working with in North Manchester at the moment, as a practice, dance wouldn't be the thing that they would be drawn to Mm. for agitation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the different things that they're drawn to that agitate are equally valid and are equally on the thing. And I know know that's not what you're... um, it's not the way you're setting it up, but I think it's just worth recognizing Let's that talk about it, yeah. agitation happens for different people with different tools. Yes, okay. And that those tools are equally valid and are different approaches for understanding and negotiating and are a they world. Equally embodied? Like, are they embodied tools? Like, I don't know. Um, something that you do physically, or are they. Mm. Th- a different level of physicality, I guess. Yeah, okay. Probably not um, in terms of a, a uh, let's say, like a trained body, a trained dancing body. Oh, well, my theory is that like knitting will do the same thing because it can become a physical meditation. Yeah. Whereas um, something, something that is not take care of the mind's default mode network enough to release it from its incessant nagging may not provide the window into just being together. I mean, it was one of my favorite things dancing with people is to be with them without having to talk because I, it's, it's much easier to like people. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, mm. Absolutely. And I think, um, Dance at its best is when you are able to connect mm. with individuals, whether that be sitting in an auditorium watching mm. or connecting actually in the room physically with yeah. people. Yeah. Um, you know, a project close to my heart, the LGBTI Elders Dance Club, which all the Queen's men produce, yeah. is literally just a space where people come together once a month yeah. for food, chats, and dancing. dancing. And it's, it's, so it's, it's as simple as that, but yeah. the action of coming together and moving together mm. is profound. Mm. And it is that ability to kind of get out of the head and just connect with individuals. It's yeah. about the touch. It's about the movement. It's about uh, communion with different people mm. in different ways. Communion's nice. Uh, also to like just take communion back from the church and he's like no no we're having our own communion well it's always on sunday <laughs> afternoons as well <laughs> okay after church yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's a gay it's a gay church <laughs> lgbti elders I, I also wonder then if like an interesting part of it is this argument that say state or city councils are much more productive than say federal governments because federal governments are dealing with ideology so often and city councils just have to deal with the logistics of getting the rubbish out getting the water in and dancing does that as well at the individual level where actually we need to deal with the practicalities of moving through space and time around each other and in this second in this moment 
um, what your ideologies and my ideologies may clash, but actually they're not relevant to make this a success. And so maybe there's some short-term, long-term thing that is a that is a shame to lose and the thing that would encourage its discredit even more is to constantly be in a capitalist mindset where you're trying to capitalize on each moment for the benefit of your future self. <laughs> and you see that when people navigate through a city. Yeah, right. Like it's literally, I need to get a point A, a yeah, point yeah, B yeah, as yeah. quick they, as they I can, as efficiently them. as I can. Yeah. And while I do it, I'm going to be sending an email on my phone, so I'm not even going to look up. And I need to actually, while I do that, I could talk to somebody on the phone, I'll order my dinner. You know, like you see people do that all the time and mm. it's actually how rarely do we just move for the pleasure of mm. the movement or for the you know navigate our lives in a way that yeah allows for that capacity yeah yeah for for changing and reflecting and physicalizing <laughs> in a different way beyond just doing it for the yeah there's and there's there's also that you once you physicalize something you you've you've spilled out into the real world that you're considering it and then you can be observed having this consideration and then you can either get called out on it or you can get misinterpreted through it but but basically the thing that the world is reacting to you haven't fully born yet so it's not strong enough to um become what it has to become so that then it can be in response to those things. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, so it's a bit of a side note, but I've been working on this pro, um, program around conversations and creative conversations. Ah, this is good. This and is a good idea. we started, um, it's really a group of people that are not necessarily connected to culture and art as okay. Uh, as we would probably as, perceive it. As defined it. by people that yeah. are ticking the As we boxes. would be yeah. kind of maybe navigating or engaging with it. Yeah. And just having, really we're just having chats okay. about all sorts of things. Okay. But a few of the sessions, uh, I've introduced the chat with some, you know, question prompts and we've walked around the block just in pairs. Oh, yeah. And actually just moving just takes people out of their heads. Yeah, yeah. And the ability to have a conversation that connects with somebody that they don't know mm. in a completely different way. Mm. And, you know, businesses and all sorts of things are, you know, starting to recognize, you know, the walking meeting the and all this kind walk. of stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, which actually, when I um, pitched it, well, not pitched it, when I, you know, put it as an exercise, I wasn't even thinking about I was really doing it because Zumba was in the background <laughs> and it was going to be on for another half an hour and the sound was so overpowering and the sun was also out which is kind of also not so common in manchester so it's like let's make the most of the sunshine Mm -hmm. and the fact that this room is just really not conducive to conversation but when people came back into the space they had transformed Mm -hmm. there'd been like a transformation not in terms of you know um you know, a religious sense of transformation, but they had connected in a way that they hadn't in yeah, previous yeah, yeah. In, in previous ways. And I think it was really a part of that journey, and it was really about actually just getting out of the um, out of the mind. Whether that's dancing in the um, 
traditional sense? Probably not, but, you know, Meryl Tankard kind of talked about it when I interviewed her. You know, people ask her if she's dancing and she's like, well, I'm navigating the world, Mm. you know, that sense of actually dancing through life or moving through life and thinking of that as a some sort of choreographic practice, I think is quite an interesting lens. When I went through VCA, I remember people often saying that anything could be dance and taking that as a form of hope. And then I'm... But then something about... uh, It's been 10 or 15 years since then. My thoughts have come to, well, what is it to be something if anything can be the thing? And how can it become if it already is? And why should I devote (laughs) the capacity that I have with the privilege and the luck that I've been given to something that doesn't need me? And so then I... (laughs) Which um, is, of course, very anthropocentric uh, and whatever the other word is where it's mm, anyway it's just very self-centered but you kind of want to feel useful to the thing that you're devoting your time to and then I wondered if maybe there could be an analogy between talking and singing and moving and dancing where talking can become singing but it's doing it and moving can become dancing but we it does something different to us to do it and to experience it and that um uh, it it's helpful to have definitions so that you can know how to consider the thing because different things require different consideration and then also to make this difference between dancing and choreography Mm. whereas yes you can choreograph your way across a city but i don't know if you can dance your way across a city unless you have entered a mode of some kind of musical rhythmic repetition or something like that. And, and until it's recognizable, is it dancing? Even if it's not good. Like we all know when our uncle's dancing and it's not good. Oh, when I'm dancing, it's not good. What? Depends on the context. Okay. 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 And the outfit, right? And the alias that you've introduced yourself as. Well, if somebody taught me steps, I I can't do them. Literally. I can't. Can you, open up your body to be a vessel for dance to flow through into the world oh yeah i can do that yeah yeah that's what i'm talking about but but you know but in terms of context and in terms of how we recognize Uh, i think it's quite interesting because i can dance Uh and i love it yeah you know and i you know i'm not talking like drunk dancing i'm just like i don't need you know like i can go into a space and i mm-hmm. can like i can move but i can move in a way that most people think i'm off my head okay um but it's not it's not necessarily the dance that will be recognizable right. as also because it's not replicable like i can't right. I, I can't recreate what i'm doing you know but quite if, you, often. if you film it you don't have to recreate it yeah you that's just- true but I, there is something i guess you know, in con- I, we know, like, all the research tells us that participation in dance has so many mental health benefits, physical benefits, yeah. you know, it can be used to alleviate illnesses, it yeah, can, yeah. you know, retrain the mind, it can do all these kind of things through participation. Yeah. Does that have the same effect when we watch it? No fucking way. And is that when it becomes self-centred? I, I don't think it. I, I don't see dancers or dance 
itself as people being self-centered but is is that is that the distinction actually between participating and something that is then rarefied and on a stage i i don't know um i think we're in an age of problematic participation (laughs) 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 to to like (laughs) only and i reflect upon there's a book that i um was lucky enough to make with three collaborators vanessa marion and Michaela Carr and Tian Baker and and then we made a system for dancing together when you don't know the same dance um, to my idea was to to uh, at least acknowledge and approach the fallout of multiculturalism which is we don't have the same dance anymore I can't meet my neighbor in a dance circle because his dance is different to my dance. Or maybe he doesn't dance at all. Or maybe I don't dance at all. But that that was something that used to exist. That was a, a communal space that we could come together in. And so we we made a set of rules. And then each day somebody else came in, another dancer with different training pathways and ethnic and gender and like all of those tick box backgrounds of like um, needing voices that are as far away from your own as possible, but who have an embodied training experience and practice and presented them the book that we had written up. And then we tried to see if it would work to function so that we could all dance together. Um, But of course, as soon as I start dancing with somebody and meet them, some of my things become their things and some of their things become my things. And what I hoped was that the spirit of meeting in a dance circle that is this uh, sacred space that has been invented for that purpose would alleviate for that um, particular amount of time the need for um, defense of one's own culture to be the only way that it could be preserved or respected. And that um, I, I wonder that in relationship with... I mean, there's this crazy... I'm going to go... There's this crazy moment in Rush Hour 3 where... Who's the who's the comedian? It's not Chris Rock. Eddie Murphy. I'd love to help it's you out, not. but I have not seen this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, he basically... He, he's African-American and he's in France and he goes up against some French gangsters, but they are genetically Asian, but they're yelling at him in French... And he throws something at them saying, you're Asian, speak Asian. But of course he has African heritage. And I don't know if, like how compacted that scene was. And so then I think that about like the empowerment front cover stories of people who are not of European history becoming ballet stars, for example, or of like white French dudes taking out Battle of the Year or the Korean breakdance groups winning Battle of the Year year after year. And then I wonder, like, at what point... There is no winning this game, (laughs) but perhaps there is a way to play it that leads to separation and there's a way to play it that leads to learning and discovering and finding each other. And that seems like it's in participation, but it also seems super fragile. (laughs) Absolutely. It's quite interesting because when you step onto a dance floor, and here I'm talking about kind of a club scene, and you see people starting to replicate Mm. 
the way other people are dancing. Yeah. And depending on the type of environment will also determine how boring yes. that range of movement may yes. be or how limited. Yeah. And then in other spaces that are maybe a bit freer mm-hmm. or a, a less... Uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a more permission. Whoever grants that permission, I don't know whether it's just a, a number of people within that space mm. uh, moving in a way that allows um, a whole lot of other things become permissible. Mm. And what happens then is that the room completely changes again. And you could literally be in the same city on the same night and just go to two different, two different spaces. Uh, and I think that's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And it, you know, to go. Uh, <laughs> I was at a friend's. I was emceeing a friend's wedding, and her main thing. Well, both of their main thing, but particularly Claire. She wanted everyone dancing. That was her. That was her thing. Did she have an aesthetic or or a playlist or something? She had a band. Okay. So it was a really great band, right. um, and she just wanted at the end of the night everyone dancing. And I was just going up to you know, you know Chris's friends or cricket boys and come on, they want you dancing, and there was just this this hell like there was this fear of actually stepping onto the dance floor. It's like come on. It's what they want. And I was like, either I can bring the dance floor to you or you can join the dance floor. And there was an older guy and he was completely sober because he was driving the bus um, for everybody. And I started dancing with him and he was, you know, he was going to be the wallflower. Like he was just, no, 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 standing in the background. And I got him up and we started dancing. And he then danced the whole night. And at the end of the night, he actually came up and he thanked me and he said, thank you so much. I have not danced for years and I had the most fun, completely sober, older, white, heterosexual male who literally had just not given himself permission or there hadn't been the space where he could just go and be silly. And literally, that's how I dance. Like, I'm really not taking myself seriously. And I think... Whether that gave him permission or not, I mean, not the hero in this story. The fact is <laughs> that he got up yeah. and he 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 spent the whole night, mm. and his partner commented on it as well and said, you know, she loved it, and and there's something really quite amazing in that the space became one in which anybody could step into it, mm. and all those rules and all those bullshit things that people have in their head that I can't dance or I'm not a dancer or I don't, I just just left. And people weren't standing there kind of trying to move in any particular way. They were just doing what mm. ever. And I, and, yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but it was just, it's quite interesting when you let go of, I guess, what happens in that dance yeah. circle and what's permissible. Yeah. Well, it's also the permission that... I, maybe it's taken for granted that we should have the capacity to give ourselves permission mm. because mm, for a functional society, the, like the level of cohesion required for a functional society is like just below um, monoculture. Mm. <laughs> and so you're constantly asking others for permission. 
and when it just keeps being put back on the individual to refuse plastic bags and plastic straws and give yourself permission to live your best life, you're like, well, just give me a paper bag, make it available for me yeah, yeah. and invite me onto the dance floor. That's what the MC used to do, actually. Mm. I remember um, there was... Mm, I've been editing music for an upcoming project by Dance Makers Collective and it's a lot of the tracks that I was going through, it's, it's based in the Rivoli, which was this dance party. And the MC introduces the band, says what it's about to give enough context and then tells you, it's almost like an order. Ladies and gentlemen, your partners, please, please. <laughs> so you can you can rest back on the idea that you're just fulfilling your role here. And then once you have stepped into the cookie mold, then you can be whatever flavor cookie you want to be. Yeah. Um, and so there's something about maybe we should, instead of just telling each other to, um, you do you, like actually try and listen enough to work out what that person wants and then tell them that exact thing, give them permission to do that exact thing, which I guess is what making spaces is about, right? That was an amazing, um, I did a, all the Queen's Men, the project that we're doing up in Scotland, uh, introduction at um, National Theatre of Scotland, we did kind of a meet and greet day and all the staff came and the facilitator taught us all a dance. Ah, A Scottish dance? Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. Okay. It's very bizarre and it's offbeat and it's quite funny. It's probably like the equivalent of our nutbush or something like that. Okay. She said, the only thing you have to do, this is the only thing you need to do. You just need to muck it up. Oh. You know, get it wrong. That's that's literally your only instruction is to get it wrong. Mm. And right and then and there, the permission was just, mm. you didn't, mm-hmm. there were steps, but it didn't kind of, there was no fear or risk mm. of making a mistake or like trying to be perfect. It was like, actually, just just have fun mm. and you can get it wrong, but we're going to step four steps to the right and then we're going to do a little kick here and then we'll go f- three steps to the left. And it's like, actually, it doesn't matter if you can't do it. And I think I think in terms of the participation where it gets problematic is there's this yeah. assumed assumption, um, just this idea that you just have to know what you're doing. Well, I guess you used to, right? You Like you would... I'm only recounting in what a social I've dance from, context. Say, my mum would like you would rock up to the dance hall knowing the dancers, and then you would find a partner to do the dances with, and you would somehow magically learn those dances like with a mop at home from your cousin or something. Yeah, and so, they'll pass down. And yeah, all that kind of. Yeah, but there was also people within that within those spaces that didn't go True. to the dances because the they couldn't. Yeah. I do them or they, you yeah. know, or would stand on people's feet or whatever. That would have been me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no one would have danced with me. I wonder if, we're, as we're talking about um, giving the permission so that the the state can flourish and then evolve, uh, I wonder then about what we're both doing with our respective podcasts of asking the embodied artists themselves give a language and a framework to their process um, which is often left up to the disembodied critique or academic um, 
but then I also, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, is that a value that we're bringing or is that just like an accidental side? I, I think in many respects you articulated just them why I was interested in kind of interviewing dance makers mm-hmm. because my background is not that mm-hmm. and I was really interested in how people talk about the practice. Mm-hmm. And But did you kind of want them to talk about it a bit better? I was interested in people talking about it in a way that was less esoteric and more connected with the ways in which other people, and here I'm talking real generalizations, mm. but are engaging with the world. Right. You know, so whether it's interviewing, you know, um, Gideon and talking about arts leadership yeah. or talking about um, ecosexuality with somebody that's embodied that kind of movement and that kind of way of thinking through his or through their dance work. Uh, You know, finding a language to talk about things that resonate in different ways beyond just the dance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I have a question about how to leave enough space for the dance. Within that. uh, For the dance to be enough. Um because my feelings is that the ultimate power of why you would dance is because um, there's something that it can do that the words can't do. And Absolutely. I, and so leave your esoteric program <laughs> notes for your for your bedroom because essentially it's not yeah, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. And I think I think that was. You know, in terms of when I say talking about it in ways that are not esoteric, mm. um, I don't necessarily... I love dance writing and I love engaging in the practice in that way, but I have I have an end to that. Well, I was really... At, like when I was listening to Justin Shoulders' interview and I was... Um, because basically I can just watch Justin do anything because I see in the work how deeply considered it is and anything that I see... He wants me to see. I'm like, all right, whatever. I can put my trust in you as an artist. But he also has the handles to say, I make a mask. I clean the floor. Um, I put on loud music. I, I danced at a club as like <laughs> holding the leaf blower. <laughs> Whereas um, some dance practices don't have the props that you can call upon. And so I wonder also about that about i mean about when oh yeah what do you do i dance okay so what do you do well i get to a space and then i move my body to the music and then how can how can we give how can building a verbal language around that give value to it or how can we offer a verbal language around it or i think my interest then well my interest is also driven by people um their backgrounds, where they yeah, come right. from, their pathways. Yeah. Their, and here I'm, you know, and here it might be really specifically about how they move or how they mm. use a space or their training methodologies or what have you. But it, it might be completely different. You know, might might be talking about um, HIV AIDS and the way that that's informed the way that they read or think about music. Or it may be... 
you know, it may be that they're not describing the movement or how they dance per se, but the things that they're really interested in or thinking about or the people that inspire them. And so I guess giving it a bit of socio-political context to their to their background or to their points of view or um, fr- the, the framing, which might not necessarily be be seen in the work, but it's informing the way that they're coming about it or their politics to making the work or the audience or who they consider to be the audience. Yeah, yeah that you, re- you are at every level remembering and being reminded that the words are not the work, but the words are... Um, another way for them to share this yeah the sketches that led to, to be the- and to be honest a lot of the interview i mean some of the most boring interviews and i'm not going to um name the ones that i think they are but are the people who are literally just talking about their practice okay. and not able to see that within a broader not in a context of other people's work necessarily yeah. but actually what they're saying how that might be resonating with other people yeah how does how does dance move beyond that? I mean, let's talk about dance as an insular canon rather than like insular artists or insular institutions, but as a as a self referential canon across time. Well, I, yeah, I I mean to just give a bit of context to some of those boring interviews too. I think it's worth mentioning that quite a few times I've stopped people and said, yes, we can keep talking about this work, yeah. but it's not going to be a very interesting interview unless people can see your show. Right. Yes. And your show's only on in Melbourne for three nights. Okay. And this is being listened to by 15,000 people all around the world, you know, and 30% of my audience is in Europe and the UK and, you know, there's 30% is in... North America and it might be that they're so interested enough that they look up a YouTube video but if we can have a conversation that's just a bit mm. a bit bigger than just what you're making for this one work and I, I, I with most of the interviews I try and do that I yeah. will always talk about what they're doing at the time but try and put that into the broader context of their work or their journey to speak a little bit further outside of the dance bubble yes. uh, and finding what some of those reference points might be that might resonate with other people that are not necessarily um, dance savvy. So do we do, should we do that for both of us about what is it that you're Well, I think, about? I think that in terms of that bubble, I think that's a really amazing question. I don't know yeah. whether my podcast does that. Um <laughs> But how how do what was it? it was how do um, like thinking outside of that bubble, thinking about how the practice? I think yeah. or talking about that practice in a way that I mean, Wombat Radio is really based on what are you doing, what is that doing, or what do you hope that that is doing? And so maybe I will ask you that: What are you doing? You're you're like because you said about um, being focused on. Um, these different platforms that are socially engaged and artistically engaged, and then we could go macro and say, oh, sorry, micro and say, okay, that involves podcasts and it involves performance events and it involves the Sunday afternoon gay men's church dance. <laughs> um, and then we go macro and say, what do you hope that that is doing? 
Yeah, I, and yeah. So I, I think in terms of the podcast, um, it really started as a desire to talk to people about dance in ways that would connect people who may be not so interested in dance. One of the things that I was increasingly frustrated about. I mean, my background's in performing arts, but they moved into health sciences and what have you. But I was people who were in theatre and within other artistic disciplines and not necessarily engaging with dance. And I kept getting drawn to dance and I was drawn to dance because I didn't have the language that I did for theatre. And theatre, you know, 90% of it I was seeing and I wasn't enjoying. I just couldn't connect with it anymore in the way that I could be swept away. That's all we want. That's all. That's all we all want. Yeah, and then when you see something so many times, you're like, ah. So dancers also become that. Um, It's hard to. It's very hard to be swept up in the magic now because I've just seen so much of it. But I was really interested in why. Why aren't people interested in seeing dance? How can we have conversations about dance in ways that are um, about practice and about what people are doing and thinking? And how they are um, uh, navigating the world through dance, mm. you know, in, in terms of their thinking, like what drives them, what's their passion, why dance, why, why that is a medium for, and what can that medium do? What can dance say that other mediums can't? I don't know if it can do anything apart from be one of the, uh, I mean, you know, I'll just put it at the top here of my, my favourite things to do. Um an incredible pushback against the commodification of labor because you're saying this body that can output this amount of labor for this amount of money per hour is instead going to go and spend those calories on being in a connected physical state either with itself or the moment or gravity or somebody else. Uh, And so its uselessness is its ultimate rebellion. I, I say that coming from... Uh, like growing up in a labouring environment, like my dad ran a um, furniture removals company. So that's what you did when you weren't at school. Like you would lift heavy shit in and out of trucks and get paid for it. And then it's hard to do that when you're exhausted for dancing or vice versa. It's hard to then go and dance. But um, so it's it's less of the release that happens, I guess, from like an office work standpoint where you're like, oh, I just need to finally move actually (laughs) all your muscles already hurt and then the dancing gives your body back to you from the like side gig of loaning it out in a yeah i think that's really an amazing description it it is the question that i don't necessarily ask in every interview but it is the question that people find the hardest to answer and it's one that i think is probably unfortunately in this neoliberal world, one of the most important ones. How to financially justify. How, how do you talk about your practice in a way that makes people... And I don't think this is the job of all artists at all. Mm. You know, I, I, And I'm certainly coming from the perspective that um, arts should be you know, funded and supported and all that kind of stuff. But we need to get better at talking about it. Yeah. And unless we can talk about what value it's bringing and i don't mean an economic value i'm not talking bums on seats so you know what you mention is yeah. it's equally v- valuable yeah. um and it's what 
maybe drives you maybe it doesn't maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's just the politics I'm here for the fame actually <laughs> <laughs> um but whatever whatever that is we need to get better at t- talking about it and if we don't talk about what we do well then we're very easy to um discount and discard yeah. and you see that um in science, when scientists and CSIRO weren't communicating necessarily what they're doing so well, and they just like, oh, well, the scientists are just sitting around in there, you know, but what are they doing? Mm. And then they came out with a whole lot of, you know, things like the CSIRO, you know, behind Wi-Fi and like mm-hmm. plastic money and like all <laughs> these things that kind of, I guess, articulates yeah. their value and their worth but and their what they're economic doing. economic value. I, I would posit that perhaps there is no economic value but there's a social value and there's a human value and that it's the job of the artist to constantly and consistently remember not to need to justify their human value on a spreadsheet and i i totally agree that maybe the institution that gets funded needs to needs to operate in that way and needs to be held accountable. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would say that m- not all, but if you're in the grant system, yeah. you are already talking about your work and you're yes. talking about it in particular ways yes. and you're trying to justify it in particular ways. If you are acquitting a grant, you're doing the same thing, you know, and people are, you know, oh, you know, we had 55 people come to this session. And, you know, like already we're working in a neoliberal system. Yes. And I think it's problematic and I certainly think there's more interesting ways of doing that and I don't think it's box ticking. Have but you I come do th- up with any? I'll well, I think it's actually any? telling good stories. Okay, but not narrative because I think dance does narrative m- most poorly out of almost all the mediums. It's, my, it's just my opinion my, as an artist. In terms of the dance itself. Yes, yes. Yeah. But I think as artists and kind of... I wasn't the driver for delving to dance. What I was interested in is how do you talk about the practice yeah, right. to somebody that's not having that experience yes. on the floor? So how do you talk about the value in non-economic terms? Yeah. But that's why I think the like when you talk about somebody's journey into the dance or what oh, yeah, happens yeah, yeah, in the yeah. rehearsal room or like trying to find, it's not a narrative per se, but it's finding a story about what's happening yeah. within the context, the social and political that's, context. that's placing a story onto the artist and their trajectory. Yeah, well, they've already got the story. Yeah. I'm just making them tell it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not making, I'm not putting the story on them. Whereas I'm thinking about um, justifying a, an artwork and that theatre and literature and images like even a silent film tells a much better story than a dance piece in terms of narrative but what a dance piece can give you is exactly what you said is that reprieve Mm. from the literal from the narrative and it's you almost don't go there like that that um Arnold Schwarzenegger film when he goes to Mars Total Recall and one of the ads that you see is this like classic saying of everywhere you go, there you are. That even if you go on holiday, there you are. Sometimes you can go to a dance and not see the dance. And that's when an experience has happened. Um, and that, I think, is the potential and the power of art beyond entertainment. 
sometimes and more often than not you go to dance and you write a shopping list in your head about all the things you need to do on the weekend. Yeah, or all the things that you're not going to do in the dance that you're making. Um, but I, I, I do strongly agree with that. And yeah. I think I, I don't think um, it's about justifying why they're doing it. No. For itself, or because it needs justifying, it. it's about getting better at talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talking about why. Yeah. And actually, the beautiful times or the beautiful moments is when you get feedback yeah. on interviews from people who are not dance people, yeah, right. and go, "Oh, you know, I went, you know, I went and saw that. Yeah. You know, I saw you post that, and I went and saw that show. And you're like, oh, well, why did you go?' And it's like, oh, I was really interested in, um, you know." can't think of a direct example, but I was really interested in this theme. I was really interested in this. And it's like, well, okay, you took a punt on something that you wouldn't otherwise. Mm. And that's great. And that's what reviews used to do so prominently. And You do need a season longer than three nights. Yeah. For that to... And you also need newspapers and arts journalism oh. that we don't have to the same extent <laughs> as we used to, you know? Like, and that's... And that's that's a big thing, I think, as yeah. well. And w- why... Certainly why my projects kept going is because there's been an audience for it and mm. people have been like, I, they need to talk about their work. Yeah. And in an art in an art form that is so temporal yes. in so many respects, and is yes. three nights here and two nights there, and maybe that's the end of it, the life of that show. What, What is in the future might be a video of the performance nowadays it might be this mm. but it misses the all the other context around yes. that and so hopefully some of the interviews provide some of that context it doesn't do all of that mm. work but does give a little bit of perspective around why and why now and yeah. who for i mean there's already a, a pre-delay on being con- relevant to context because of the amount of time it takes to get a dance show up, right? If you, because you can't get paid after, so if you want to get people in to do it with you, then you maybe have a two or three or eight year delay, and then hope. I mean, I guess shit's still relevant, but sometimes not. Sometimes not urgent. It's left the the media scruples. Yeah. Hmm. I'm just going to have a look at some things that I wrote down to remind myself to ask you. I think it is a very, like, it's it's just such an important art form that there are records and reviews and criticism used to do that in so many ways. And, you know, I've always loved Deborah Jowett's writing about shows that I've never seen and I never will see, you know, they're they're just not done anymore. Yeah. Because the language that she uses to capture that moment and that work and putting it into a context yeah. is profound. But they're not necessarily people that are doing that. And program notes don't very rarely do that. You know, thanks my mum, thanks for my partner. And then <laughs> this show is about, you know, something that I wrote underwater on Mars. You know, like it's just... <laughs> Just so rarely gets it right. Um, well, um, it may also be just a matter of practice, right? I I drive maybe 10, 20 hours a week. My brother who's driving a truck is driving 10 hours a day. 
he he like he can get much closer to shit in much bigger vehicles and his safety margin is even higher than mine but it freaks me out because i'm not at his skill level and it's the same when the dancer whose medium is not words um then of course is not always but often those dancers misrepresent themselves in words and the dancers that don't are the ones that somehow do such an incredible job of embodiment and intellectualization in a language that they've borrowed from visual arts and from theater because it's not their own language because that's why they're making it in dance and and it i think it can put a filter on the non-scholastic and then their incredible movement intelligence never makes it to a platform that will mean that they get supported enough to continue sharing their incredible physical intelligence. Uh, And I even thought that in, um, in Paris, there's a place called 104 where it's just big open space and people go there to freestyle and jam and rehearse. And there are a lot of people in there who's much better dancer than I am but they're not even trying to operate within the system of being acknowledged as it being an art form. But I, I like the feelings of imposter syndrome definitely resurface when I go to jam nights and such incredible dancers um, go to their day jobs and nobody sees them. And maybe that's really liberating. <laughs> maybe that's incredibly liberating that yeah. they don't have to exist yeah. in a system where... You know, we're talking about colonialism at the start and high art and stuff. It's like, well, you know, of course, all that stuff that's happening. That's my watercolor example, you know, like, of course, that stuff is happening and people are doing amazing things, but it's not on the radar. It's not in the canon. The canon. (laughs) It's not in the, you know, it's not in the conversations. It's not, they don't have program notes and they just, they're just doing it and they're doing amazing things and and that I find that incredibly inspiring actually mm. um, and maybe they can take more risks because they don't have to then write about it to justify it in any particular way it's just like mm. it is what it is and it serves a purpose and it brings people together and it is a moment in which the rest of the world doesn't exist and it's a group of people in a space Moving so to it's music. Like, it's like Fight Club, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that movie is quite problematic in terms of representations, masculinity, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's that grouping. It's that coming together. It's that, you know, communion again oh. that I think, you know, and of course, like, well, I can speak for myself. I'm assuming you're the same. I love the practice of dance and I love going to see dance shows and, you know, it's not that I hate all program notes and it's not that I don't think dancers um, can not write about their practice. Many can do it well, but many can't as well and I think they do themselves a disservice by trying to sound Mm -hmm. really smart or trying to use language that's not necessarily the best to describe their practice. And one of the things um, I'm starting to do, I've got funding um, to use Delving to Dance to um, publish 
articles from dance artists to talk about practice from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Be interesting. I it's you know haven't published the first one yet, but it'll be interesting to see what kind of comes of that. Are you going to work with them? Yeah, to, to a certain degree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm really open for them to, you know, present whatever they want in yeah. whatever context. But, yeah, there'll certainly be, you know, some editing and conversation back and forth in terms of what do you mean here or yeah. what what are you trying to communicate with this bit? Um, because I think, I think as a practice, it's obviously got so much it can teacher society has got so much that we can all learn from it's got so much that can resonate Mm. um and maybe that exists with or without language but language unfortunately is just such an anchor yeah for you know an australian and a uk society Mm. that without the language then it's very easy to dismiss something and that happens with all you know people who are literate are left off you know, left out of so many conversations just because they can't read, you know. And yeah. It's the yeah. same said for dance. If you don't have something to back it, you know, yeah. it just, it's forgettable. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, I mean, yeah, we should talk, we should have a discussion about merit as a system of um, what gets supported and what doesn't and how that system maybe is not functioning. Um, but I want to ask a harder question first. <laughs> yeah, cause, shit, because the, mer- the merit one's an easy one, so this one must be... <laughs> so looking forward to it. I want to ask, uh, because one of the things that I hope that I do the most in um, Wombat Radio is seek out people who inspire the hell out of me with, their, with what they do um, and who are just exceedingly more intelligent about that thing it's like consulting the expert really and so perhaps i want to ask you about how within the knowledge and the constant upheaval like turning of the soil that the work like releasing uh gender diversity study and all that so it wasn't it was overall diversity study gender yeah yeah right um and then working with groups who are uh what's to say give backstory as you need to instead of me like pretending to give backstory the question is how do you approach the amount of space that you take up yeah right with all of that completely like with being as aware as you must be because you're also fighting for all these other space that all these other people need to be taking up yeah i think that's a and it's not as hard question as I thought it was going to be. Oh, um, you got a harder one. <laughs> <laughs> the merit one, I think. Is in- <laughs> um, yeah, it's a really interesting... Um, I mean, it's selfish. I'm asking how, how I can be aware and still take up space. Well, I think, I think one of the things I'm really interested in is the diversity of voices. And I kind of, I find everyone generally that I've approached to be interviewed has been somebody I've been inspired by their work from for, for some aspect. Yeah. Or it might be that I find their work challenging. Yeah, when, you, for, when you're just riddled with questions and you're like, I need to evolve to be able to engage yeah, this thing. Yeah, or, or it might be completely not my practice or what I'm interested in. Right. But actually I want to talk about it. Yeah. I think then 
the other thing I try and so so that's there I guess in the the forefront it starts by thinking about the people that I'm interested in talking to mm. obviously then I get a whole heap of requests from publicists mm. and I then generally consider whether I'd be interested in talking to that person or how what that person might have to say fits next to somebody else mm. um, I'm not interested in just talking about somebody's show mm. i'm just not interested and because my audience is not all based in one spot you know and i'm interested well, the show's in- best to experience yeah and the thing that the artist is working with is the thing that we need to be and i can about. and i can help support that show and i obviously like will interview people about the shows that they're working on yeah. and I help support that and it's often used to promote their show and those kind of things and that's great but I hope that it will inform a broader conversation about that person's work yeah. that will sit uh, online as relevant for longer yeah. than something that has been and is forgotten yeah. or has been and was two and a half years ago and bad luck if you didn't see it. Um, so then thinking about whose voices um, whose voices are often unheard mm. and who, who do we not hear a lot of. Mm. And then um, pairing, I guess, the big players uh, with the small players. And I don't mean in terms of their practice is any less merit-based, but, you know, a Raphael Bononcella has obviously a huge, first and foremost, Twitter following and... You know, he's got the whole machine of Sydney Dance Company. But how can I then pair his voice next to somebody else? So Sydney Dance Company shares his episode and it gets, you know, 8,000 hits in a few days. And then hopefully they might click through to somebody who, you know, is more of an independent or an emerging artist who has never been interviewed before or has never had their work... um, had a an independent artist emailed me a few months ago and said, thank you so much for interviewing me because actually when people search my name, they find your interview because it's like one of the top hits and I'd prefer them to find that than, (laughs) you know. So I think it's about profiling in that sense. Um, And then lastly, um, more so now handing over the reins. So there's a... um, a partnership at the moment with Oz Dance Victoria around the Australian Youth Dance Festival. And so the youth ambassadors um, of the festival have done the interviews. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of supported them to do the interviews because, you know, so I, I don't need to do, do them. Actually, what they have to ask, and to be honest, some of the questions they ask have been absolute crackers. And it's been, you know, we've had a lot of conversations and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the been supported in that um but the questions are great and the interviews that they've done are completely different than what Mm. i would have done or the questions i would have asked and it kind of throws open the practice again kind of answers your question i do sometimes struggle with it um, i also wonder about when you're making like delving into dance is a platform yeah um but what about when you're making things that are not a platform for other people to be presented in yeah then you like me you're another educated white man taking up space yeah um and is do you have more to say on that matter than i do just because of your um 
deep work with thinking about and approaching all of that? It's definitely something that I'm constantly grappling with Mm. um, and it's certainly something that I don't have the answers to um, per se, deeply reflect upon it. Mm. Um, I can give an example and it's a really fresh example. Um, Yeah, that little smirk is a good indication. (laughs) Like how to frame it. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, very fresh. Um, So... This talk, um, this work that I'm doing with Manchester International Festival, we're having conversations with people who often don't get a platform, often don't hold the microphone, Mm. um, and are really underrepresented. You know, the idea of coming, you could give a free ticket to a show, but that's not not the barrier. The barrier is that it's a five-pound bus you know, return ticket. Yeah. And, and we're talking a 10 minute bus ride. And they've and got care, like the people they have to care for and it's endless. Yeah. And so, you know, giving a free ticket's nothing. No. It's, it's all these other barriers. And, um, these people are like, of course they're humans and there are so many commonalities and they're interested in the world in so many different ways. And like, th- there's, there's no denying any of that. Um, but it is a part of the city that has been looked down upon for a really long time, and that comes with baggage. You know, low socioeconomic, lower class, working class, you know, people that have done it, they've done the hard yards. Okay. For generations, I imagine. For generations. Yeah. And there is one man, and he's come every sex- session, um, working class from Port Glasgow, you know, sometimes I have to ask him to repeat things because my Aussie ears don't understand what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, very thick accent. Incredibly um, read in so many different ways. Has so much to say, mm-hmm. but does nev- never really says it. And his son came to one of the sessions and said, I've never heard my dad, he doesn't talk at home. Mm. I've never heard him talk about these things and he's obviously so passionate and so this guy um is also a bit of a conspiracy theorist um it's it's reassuring to think that even though the world's against you there's a plan there's yeah i mean if there was a human invention he'd want it to be world peace oh you know like if you know and that was one of the exercises so he's kind of he's very progressive in so much of his politic Mm. Uh, but he's, you know, buys into a lot of conspiracy theories. Now, who am I to say he's right or wrong? I don't actually know. True. I actually have no idea. Um, but he wanted to do a presentation on laws and, you know, how some are real and some are not. And anyway, it was quite... It was something that he'd been thinking about for a long time. He'd prepared this presentation and he came along on Monday and he was ready to do the presentation. But the presentation was meant to be being done on Saturday or Sunday. But he came, he'd lost sleep over it. I want to do it. I'm, you know, and I said, okay, I'll create, I'll create the space within the program. Yeah, we'll do it. So he led with his speech. It was controversial. But it wasn't racist, it wasn't sexist, it wasn't homophobic. It was it was just controversial in the sense that it was it was out there. Like some 
some facts and some truths that may be alternative to facts. Yeah. Okay. And and certainly, again, who am I to say? You know, like from my worldview, I would probably discount a large percentage of it. But but who am I to say? I have not done that reading. He might. It's not. That's that's actually irrelevant. The fact is, he had a opportunity to talk about something that he's passionate about that he's been talking to me about every single session and originally it had to be 30 minutes but i managed to um work with him to make it a 15 minute thing within seven minutes one person walked out and he walked out in uh, in very much, it was a storm out. Okay, it was a know, how yeah. dare you waste my time? Okay. If you want to put up somebody that's an expert yeah. or has something to say, yeah. I studied law. Yeah. Um, you know, this is rubbish. He's probably right. He's to- probably totally right. But actually, does it matter to hear different opinions? Does that matter to position a voice that's often not heard in a space where his question, where his um, thinking might be challenged in different ways? Is it possible for us to sit in a space and have our thinking challenged? Mm. And I think, in terms of when I'm thinking about making space, it's not necessarily making space for things that we agreed with or whatever. It's actually just providing opportunity for a diversity of opinions and a diversity of backgrounds, and then see how that sits together. Or, or not. Or sit. not. <laughs> you know, I obviously did the emails afterwards and stuff. Anyway, he's decided he doesn't, he doesn't want to be involved and I've wasted his time and, you know, conspiracy theories and what have you okay. are a waste of time. And I get that. But quite often I think we're very quick to discount voices of others yes. without necessarily listening. Yeah. And we're very good to shut people down and not necessarily hear and so I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, in terms of I, making space, I think is problematic in a sense because yeah. it's like, actually, I have the space exactly. and I'm going to make the yeah. space for you. I think actually it's also, for me, making space is also, um, to go with that analogy is actually to, to, to be changed by or to be challenged by mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. perspectives and other points of view. Am I the best person for doing that? Um, at times I wonder if I am mm. um, and at other times I'm totally the best person for doing that mm. in in that context um, yeah so, so it is a really it is a challenging question and certainly I'm you know a white educated queer man and but you've got the queer going for you I do have the queer going for me and certainly like I wouldn't even use the gay anymore because I just think that's um, it's a different Mainstream. level of politic. Oh, right. um, but it's, it is something I think about a lot and in terms of who I seek counsel of uh, within those spaces yeah. um, and who I can really just and who, who I can support. I don't need to be the voice in that room. And mm. actually during the Festival Hour program, it was actually all going to be run by the people that we've been working with. Okay. So it's literally like it's actually just standing behind them okay. and being there. And and I've, I kind of have been in the position to advocate to make sure that they, you know, get the things like lanyards and okay. get the things like tickets and get, you know, like all those kind of things that have been 
not put on the table for them in the yeah. past. Yeah. Would I be able to do that if I was one of these participants? Fucking should be able to, but mm. I don't think the system's there yet. Mm. So, yeah, it's a big question. That is a big question, is, but yeah. I don't, I don't have the answer. Uh, I then wonder because this this already is crossfading into merit. Yeah, like old mates. The, not even the merit of him and his voice, but the merit of his information to be spread <laughs> because yeah. disinformation does do us a disservice. Yeah. But unless it's framed as sci-fi or speculative architecture or something like that, that's awesome. Mm. Um, but what it is is a sandbox where you say, everyone, we're just going to decide that we're operating under different rules for the next 15 minutes of the presentation and go with me on it, which is which is the power and the potential and the beauty of fiction and of art, right? Is that Picasso says, I'm just going to draw some crazy shit and then the way you can see the world is going to be have another option. Um, but we're also operating against a backdrop of disinformation that's not sandboxed anymore. And so I wonder what our responsibilities are in... Like if if the artist and the space that artists create and carve out and manifest was supposed to be for subversive thought and for alternative um, proposals, and that space is very well taken care of at the moment, I wonder if there's a different responsibility that we should be heeding. I think uh, I do agree, but I also think art is that space for difficult conversations um and i think it is a space in which we should quite often i see art as reflecting my own politic right and you know artist friends we all share generally a very similar politic i think that's about sharing a similar class it would be my proposal that you, I mean, that your politic is informed by the people that you're around, but the people that you're around are the people who can operate the same way that you do in the world so that you can all meet at the pub and you can all afford the ticket entry of having that experience of whatever three or four beers cost, for example. Absolutely. But then when, yeah. But like if, if, if some of the artists were hella rich, like dripping in money and they got picked up in their limo and taken to their private jet, you couldn't hang out with them they wouldn't be your mates because you wouldn't be able to keep up with them what if they flew me <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice is there a seat on that jet yeah. <laughs> like in that I think it's um, ape shit when Beyonce talks about buying Jay-Z a jet because she just totally outstripped him in cash and it's like okay I'll keep I'll sort it out so you can stay with me <laughs> I, yeah but I do I do think yes I agree and it you know is it it's class, it's a whole range of things. But the art art spaces of a certain level yeah. are quite quite progressive in some respects. And I yeah. hesitate saying that because they're quite conservative in others. But the politic is quite left-leaning often. Mm. And we can create work that can, can 
is a mirror and kind of keeps reflecting our view or makes us angry because nothing's being done around X, Y, Z. Or we can also see work that challenges us and have conversations that challenge us and push us in different directions. Because I don't think anybody's changed by going to see a show about something that's reflecting their own politic. They might walk out feeling a little bit more emboldened or they might feel a little bit um, like, yeah, we've got to do something, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not going to change the world. What, what is, or is it our responsibility to know what is? Like, is it something that we should put our effort into? Yeah, I just, I get, I guess it's not necessarily our responsibility. I mean, I don't think art has to do that. Okay. Um, but I do think in terms of, it's very risky when we start censoring or start suggesting that different voices need a platform and some don't or some platforms are bigger than others. And I think that's what the left does. Because yeah. they hierarchy, this word that I just made up for, they put in a hierarchy. Um, <clears throat> there's this many, many things at play. Like there's obviously the woke Olympics and then the hierarchy that that puts you in based on your intersectionality. And then there's the left to right gradient and that some um, fights by... Uh, people after social justice, for example, is not to dismantle, but is to flip mm-hmm. the power. And so I wonder if if hmm, it's the same thing with that proposal that I made about if there's something to win, there will be harsher and more violent competition. Um, that if if dancers and artists had crazy political and financial power if they would be as noble as they are <laughs> or if they would succumb to knowing better than others and it is our our we have the privilege of how benign our efforts are that we can continue to be um, wildly accepting and noble and all that sort of shit because we whatever we do won't have an impact. I don't know. I'm thinking about it out loud. I mean, it's the point now that a lot of people who are practicing art are doing it because they do have the financial backing of their parents or they have a trust fund. And, you know, you London's a prime example of this. You know, you've got... I, I'm not even talking about practicing as an artist, just even an arts worker. Your wages aren't high enough to pay your rent and do all that and live a normal life or live a, you know... But they're being funded by parents or other things. So all, all of a sudden, the living wage is so low that it precludes people who otherwise would have a lot to say or a lot to contribute. And that's a merit problem again. And that, yeah, that yeah. kind of speaks directly to the merit problem. Yeah. Um, and and dance is a prime example of where the for people to cu- become the elite level. Use that word, you know, with, loadingly. With start with um, well, funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, parents have invested a lot of money generally in those children. Yeah. And, you know, a dance class in Manchester for a child's 15 quid. It's $30 for one dance class. You can see shows that cheap, uh-huh. like movies and stuff. Yeah. 
And I'm sure there's other dance schools that offer, you know, cheaper classes. But the minimum wage is £7.80. Oh, that's two hours of work. Uh-huh. Pre-tax. Okay. So, in terms of, um, you know, looking at who we're not seeing mm. and why why is... Probably dance is one of the... It's lagging in many respects in terms of that level of investment. Mm. Somebody can start theatre at 22, mm. you know, and and learn and that kind of stuff. The body doesn't have that same level of... doesn't have an expiry date like it does in dance. And I'm, I'm, and I'm saying that knowing that there's so many exceptions to the rule. But if we look at kind of the mainstream dance industry your body's got an expiry date yeah and i think your interest also has an expiry date like your desire to uh output that amount of effort in each day lasts until a certain age and to get that level of school required to even get an audition Mm. or to get into a Mm. dance school Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this is where men for a long time have had an advantage over women Definitely. in the sense that they can come in quite late. Yeah. Um, but when you take into account um, things like class and how that's then played out and then who then um, can participate in those spaces mm. and, you know, it's no accident that street dance and all this kind of, you know, these different dance practices attract a much diverse uh, group of people mm than, you know, the contemporary classical kind of Western concert dance um, spaces. And in terms of hierarchy, one's held up as something that can be funded and acquitted and the other one is is not. Yeah. But only barely held up as something that can be funded and acquitted. Like, just barely. And that's why it's really difficult. Right. We're talking before in terms of critique. That's why yeah. it's very difficult to critique an art form that is otherwise already fragile. Do you think it'll just die out? Do you think it'll just be released back to the practitioners and no longer be uh, funded? Or uh, I mean, I wouldn't take arts funding as for granted. Mm this current political context anywhere um certainly in australia what about Um, artistic merit so the like your merit to get in we've covered like possibly you just never enter the first chapter because you don't go to the 15 quid dance class uh but then i wonder if you do come about somehow and you end up out of the people that get through, like how how can because merit is a metric on a grant application, mm-hmm. artistic merit, and we even talk about the people that we want to talk to as being that the way that they've inspired us or challenged us has added to the the amount of merit we see in spending our time <laughs> to engage them, and hopefully the what we value like what value we can give back to them also is a, like it equalizes the merit judgment so they've they've made one on us as well but i then wonder like uh 
uh, it's a very mixed up question because there's a merit of embodied intelligence and then there's a merit of making an arc for a performance and then there's a merit of visual design sensitivity so that you can create a scenography that speaks to uh, a level of people's awareness that is at a closer point and more readily engageable than their dance mirror neurons yeah and uh and 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 so on and so when people get collapsed down into a single person even though their jobs are to completely lose their sense of ego so that they can generate a new movement that may undermine what who they thought they were and then slip into a cocktail outfit and then get donated two million for the next season from a benefactor which requires that instantly requires a deep confidence that what you're doing has enormous value but actually to find anything new you have to let go that of the idea that what you just innately spit out is going to be valuable and genius yeah uh so i wonder about incentive structures for and that perhaps the incentive structures are not letting the best um artwork rise to the top and at least there is a change where we were talking about before that some of the bets the protocol and conduct that is that we want to de-incentivize is being challenged Mm. finally (laughs) instead of this like mad genius who can just be an asshole to everybody Um, there is also that sense that yeah in terms of people playing or performing outside of the space as well that Mm -hmm. gives them hmm. maybe that's a thought bubble i can't (laughs) can't really finish but in terms of the in terms of what becomes yeah that that is a thought bubble i can't finish because the example i'm thinking of i can't do you think that it's something like you can just you're you're picked for one role your capacity to do one side of the job and the other side of the job that you can just kind of get away with doing. Unfortunately, that's the art mm-hmm. and you're picked or <laughs> you're picked for your feasibility. Well, Noel Tovey, when I interviewed him and subsequently I've had many chats about him, he's, he's kind of quite anti-arts funding, okay. you know, and, you know, he's in, He's 80, at least, he's, you know, he's an older man and he's kind of come through an art system in which there was a commercial imperative for success. Okay, that's where chookers comes from, right? That you hope that you get enough audience that you can afford to eat chicken. Well, yeah, that's one of the, yeah, that's one of the... Maybe that's just an urban myth. No, no, there's two, there's two possibilities and I think that's one of okay. them. <laughs> I like that one, but it is that sense that if the show flops, you're out of work. Right. And that's what musicals live on, basically. Yeah. This is still very true. And and that commercial sector is doing very well. Oh. You know, on the whole, the commercial sector is doing they can fill theaters. Okay. But it's also popular entertainment. Right. And I wonder where like how well the artists are doing within the commercial machine. Yeah. But I mean they can also get long term stable employment, many of them. Ooh, it's novel. You know, like if the show is, 
you know, particularly if they're in Harry Potter. Yes, true. You know, if they're in Book of Mormon. Yeah. Or, or my Lion personal King favorite, or, Avenue Q. Avenue Q. <laughs> you know, they've kind of got they've got they've got a salary. It's true, and they are providing value. Um, and people are walking out of those shows feeling good about life. Mm. I'm not saying that that's better than anything else that no. is programmed elsewhere. I'm just saying that in terms of a lot of people in the you know concert dance space and in that I include you know warehouse contemporary dance performances yes. underneath a car park yeah. um, it's still concert dance <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it would some people would look quite snobbishly mm. at people who are then in that commercial sector because their artistic merit or what they have to say is you know, be monopolized. And actors do the same thing sometimes when um, people sell out for a hamburger commercial. I've been trying to sell out for years. But people Can't find but, any buyers. But there's a stigma to that. <laughs> oh, right. But isn't that just a, self de- a self-defensive, like self-soothing um, stigma? Like you hold up that you would never do that, but actually you just can't do that. Or maybe in your case. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay. But maybe if you did get it, you'd find that people would be shady about that. People being shady about other success. No. About your commercial success? Oh, it's not real if it's commercial. I I got to do a musical once. I got to choreograph for a musical that was in um, Mardi Gras Pride Week in Sydney. And it was super awesome because actually... Nothing different is happening except that more people come and see the show. But act, but everybody's skills have to be just as high. Yeah. But the agitation maybe is different. Like you do have a responsibility to your viewers somehow. Maybe. I don't know. I, don't, I think the merit one's really... I mean, it's obviously... It is a difficult question. Because it's just... There's so many aspects to it. Yes. I think, you know, we... We as individuals place a status on our level of um, of the things that we enjoy or that we rank in terms of culture, and that could be books or literature, it could be you know comics or whatever. Like, but we all have our own personal um, selling points or our personal favourites that we go to, and some of us would fight tooth and nail that that is the best or that is the purest or that is the whatever yet other people would rank you know footy higher than this or that or maybe they're equal but all of a sudden we've all already got an individual merit system that then is kind of fitting within a larger um a larger system Mm. and then going back into the you know, larger system being society and then going back into small systems within the arts space or this space. And then within that, you've got different, you know, break it down then into dance. And then you've got, again, you've all got your own individual preferences about the type of dance that you yeah. would prefer over another or which one would give you a higher status or which one will be more likely to get you the next grant. Yeah. And then we make choices about as individuals in terms of audiences or in terms of what we then consume mm. um, and maybe um, what who we interview, you know, in terms of who we're saying, actually, this is a voice that is 
more important or more interesting than this one. I like uh, hearing somebody think out loud through their story and that reassures me that they haven't told it so many times that they've stopped thinking about it. Mm. That's a nice thing about interviewing people um, before they've done their 450. uh, Or finding the question that haven't been asked before. Oh, how do you do that? Um, You just scroll their Facebook page or something. Go back to their first Instagram. Sometimes it's asking people that have worked with them. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think of an example without like, (laughs) (laughs) well, do you have one of your own? Like, is there, well, I remember when I interviewed David McAllister Uh, and, you know, ballet is not my favorite art form at all. Um, in terms of a merit thing, I think, you know, it has merit. I wouldn't poo-hoo it. I think it's its thing over there. Um, it's not the thing that I want to engage with. And in terms of curating voices, I put David McAllister before Beck Reed because I thought we'll go from like largest company in Australia with the biggest budget to somebody that's working in really unique and beautiful community contexts. Beck Reed inspires the shit out of me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Unicorn. Uh, also, I'm always wary of things that prove their merit only through their difficulty rather than through their potential for transcendence or inclusive emergence or yeah. shared experience or something. Well, so when... I totally, totally agree. When interviewing David McAllister, I thought, oh, it's very interesting the stance that the Australian Ballet has taken so shortly after the, you know, postal vote, same-sex marriage debacle. Debacle is a good word. Um, and... Australian Ballet took a really quite public stance and David and Wesley were quite prominent in some of the campaigns. Um, And I thought, oh, that's quite interesting for the major company to, you know, take take a political stance when you could argue that the Australian Ballet and most of the majors have avoided any political conversation. Even in their art. (laughs) Most definitely in their art. The exception then um, would be Bangara, I would suggest. But even then, maybe you could argue it's catered around some issues. Yeah. I, I, just, I also imagine how somebody can maintain, like w- with every generation finding the uh, absurdity that they're born into as normal, how having the same artistic voice for 30 years can still be outrageous and pushing. I don't know. Well, it's not. That's my experience of it. Um, And there are people who have been working that long that I still think are outrageous. Uh, There's, there's, yeah, and there's plenty of small to medium companies that also have had artistic directors for too long. Yeah. And the work starts becoming... um, it becomes a bit same same, but is that like Madonna? Is that a could, should, could oh, <laughs> start about Madonna? <laughs> Please, I got in a fight with some Madonna fans oh. on Twitter the other day. It becomes ideological. It wasn't great. Okay. There's an amazing um, scholar and thinker, Paul Kidd, and um, yeah, he's great on Twitter. Anyway, he posted a 
was the pride flag with a Madonna logo. And it just said, Madonna, get your logo off my flag. I retweeted it because I thought, you know, it's quite, you know, the pink washing of, you know, organizations that now come out and they're all like Mm -hmm. for gay rights. It's like, no, you're only for fucking gay rights during like a pride parade. You know, like literally where are you when trans people are getting sacked? Where are you when, you know, there are same-sex attracted people locked up in offshore detention centres. Where are you when safe schools gets taken out of schools so, you know, they become less safe spaces for queer kids? Where are you now in Australia where the government's decided to put over $200 million into school chaplain programs? You know, like, get your, get your flag and shove it. You know, like, it's not... Anyway, the Madonna fans took great offence to this. Um, and I just wrote something underneath the thing saying, oh, I couldn't agree with you more, but that was enough to set them off. Anyway, so Madonna, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to ask me about Madonna, but I was a little bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, just the, with, with each generation, she adapts and becomes the thing. But I don't know if, she, if she's bringing value to it or if she's being the empty vessel and I, I guess co- company structures are a similar juncture where a company structure cannot be an empty vessel it, because it's operating as a structure. And it's programming years and years in advance. It's yeah. kind of, it is, it's, it's, it's its own entity. Yeah. And the, the validation ladder to get to the point where a board trusts you enough to install you as a director of that is based on your pedigree as legitimized by your employment as a dancer. And that's a different role. Um, so and want, the ability to then maybe choreograph or to be an artistic visionary becomes secondary to being able to bring in money or be the head of a yeah. space that... Yeah, I did, but I going back to what I was thinking about asking David. I was like, oh, let's talk about marriage equity and the politics around that, and then let's talk about let's not talk about gender equality, but let's talk about is there going to be a space in ballet for thinking of gender in non-binary terms? Yeah, and how do we, you know, dance is so gendered as a practice and ballet even more so. Um, but is it especially strange that? ballet is full of gay men and gay voices and gay bodies and then has to pretend that it's the most straight art form of all the dancing mm-hmm. I've got so much I could say about that <laughs> but I thought it would be interesting to ask David those questions okay. and quite interestingly because he would have thought a lot about it I, I thought I thought so and his, his responses were really great in the sense that when he goes into a party, mm. he feels more comfortable playing a character, mm. which is I'm David McAllister, the artistic director, mm. as opposed to going... Like, it's almost like a mask or a responsibility yeah. of being a character in a similar way that he would go on to stage being a, a prince or what, whatever roles he was playing at the time. And I think... You know, like you can kind of understand and unpack somebody's thinking in different ways through 
making them think out something that they hadn't been asked before. Mm. And sometimes um, you get those questions right. And sometimes you just met with silence, go, oh, yeah, <laughs> didn't really. That one may be a bit combative or that one may be a bit loaded. But he, uh, in the case of David, it was actually an incredibly generous interview. Mm. And even for those that might not necessarily like ballet, I think it was quite revealing and you know he's incredibly charismatic um and intelligent and you you can't help but admire his passion for the practice it's not faked and that same passion is actually the same passion that drives any artist and going back to this merit-based conversation i think what we've done very well in the arts it's, it's happening here um, as well is that we have created this hierarchy in terms of funding and then we fight over the scraps and so when the funding is being cut from the small to medium sector we turn to the major sector and go they shouldn't have all the funding instead of just going we should all have more funding we actually make it a fight about individuals and going they what they're doing is so boring or it's so outdated and the money should be here and while my politic would probably support that actually shouldn't we be turning around to politicians and going just give us more funding Mm -hmm. and working together for our collective expression which is something that that drives us or something we have to say and it's happening in the uk at the moment the bbc is um, making uh, it's a certain group of people I think it's above 70s or something now pay for TV licenses and there's this huge outrage about the BBC how dare you you know make older people pay you know and widowers and all this kind of stuff my you know grandpa is not going to be able to afford to turn on the TV absolutely right and it's a shit move on the BBC but actually, the bigger issue is the central government is stopping, you know, he's reduced the funding for the BBC. Mm. And the BBC has made a decision to actually to, re, you know, to keep doing what we're doing of the standard that we're doing. Mm. We need, you know, but instead it's now attack about the BBC. Instead of a collective voice going, actually, how can we raise, you know, agitate yes. for everyone to produce a type of culture that they want to and for what it says to different people. It might not be for me. You know, just like heavy metal is not the music that I'm going to go to. But, you know, I would fight for somebody's right to go to a heavy metal band if they wanted to. And we shouldn't, in terms of that kind of hierarchy thing, we shouldn't forget that people do have a diverse range of interests and music's a prime example. Mm. And that actually it's the fact that music should exist and that art should exist and that we don't necessarily have to go, well, mine's better than yours or I've got more awards or that happens in a community hall where no one sees it, you know. It doesn't necessarily mean it has any less value. It's just a different form of the same practice and that you really hope, and Beck talks about this so beautifully, that somebody that maybe participates in a community dance setting and performance might then go and buy a ticket for a night out to see a dancer or choreographer that they otherwise wouldn't normally. Yeah, and then it goes the other way, that once you're done 
being the uh, embodiment of the will of the scriptwriter or the choreographer or whatever, and you want to go and dance, there are a community of people that exist that you can go and dance with and be a part of. And yeah. I wonder about the merit, again, for the reasons of who is speaking on behalf of the embodied, uh, especially in relationship to both of our roles in like putting out this content and platforming people with embodied practices. And then, it, I mean, it can get as as zoomed out as like the politician speaking on behalf of how much money it takes to put on a good dance show and how much time it takes to create a movement vocabulary and then refine it and then know how to um, craft something with it. But it can also get as zoomed in as the presenter or the producer or the marketing changes your wording in your marketing copy of your piece that you're generating with your body. And so your last line of framing for the audience that comes and sees what you do has been taken over by somebody who some brain who knows better than your body. And I wonder about the merit in the embodied speak and the and the not embodied speaking about dancing and advocating for it and against it and measuring it. I did when I it made me think in the when I wrote the report into gender equality in dance. I you know, had a lot of conversations with people like, uh, how do you, you know, how do you change this, the problem, the problem that um, there is a huge underrepresentation of um, female choreographers being programmed, particularly mainstage companies. How do you change that? So there's obviously the political levers, the funding levers um, and quotas and all those kind of things. But there's individual levers as dancers and people within that system that they can enact the questions that they ask, you know, the the kind of the way they um, take responsibility within the space. There's a role for sponsors, and there's a role for audiences. Mm. No, there's a, there's other everyone there's a, there's other levels of that. Mm. Um, training institutions but everyone kind of has a role to play and you can't take anyone i mean the quickest one is a government intervention in terms of a quota around funding but do you think that that could lead us down this like it it actually is the opposite of meritocracy because it becomes equality of outcome that is in no relationship to um supporting people to get there absolutely and there's that sense that um you know i think that that is that is one measure I think would be the, frankly, the best measure, um, for a quick, a quicker um, change. But the audience measure is another big one because it's, the bums on the seats, yeah. and the ability to go. Actually, this is the work we want to see. But is is there something? So I have, uh, I will go out on a limb, but I will not be specific. <laughs> there, with the push of programming a certain quota of First Nations works, Mm -hmm. but programming them in the framing and venues that already exist within the programs that already exist. There have been people, artists, choreographers, who, in my opinion, which granted if somebody thinks it's not worth anything, have been shoved to the point of the spotlight without the couple of years of 
learning and um, what do you not? Ah, uh, shit. The when you build little bit by little bit, it's not and like eventually it looks like innovation, but actually it's just iteration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I mean, what I super value um, when I first started making work is that nobody saw it because it wasn't ready yet and I wasn't ready yet. And then eventually I started producing something that somebody and through like through platforms that are set up for nobody to see, but to give you the space and then the mentors and then the feedback and then the community. Yeah. And in terms of the other levers, I think that is, that, that was certainly a main recommendation is that there needs to be smaller spaces and development seasons and things like that. But like when people are rushed into the spotlight to like fulfill the quotas, sometimes it can undermine them as an individual's. Absolutely. But I think, I mean, if, if like, um, if we were to focus on the gender question, yes, there are, because it's not as well, there are, there are so many people right now, right. That could take those positions. Yes, agreed. You know, there are... It's not that there isn't... You mean, you look at the Australian Dance Awards in terms of the best choreographers over a period of time. The merit-based argument... And not even... Mer- I know you're not using that argument, but in terms of there are people there yeah. who have a wealth of experience yeah. who can be given opportunities. But they the- just need to be supported or they need to just be given... Um, okay, so we put... So, <laughs> okay... So, if the Australian government decided tomorrow that the MPA companies had to program 50% of their season Mm. from female choreographers, Mm -hmm. they would either have work in their repertoire that could be brought out, Mm -hmm. um, and many of them are rep-based companies, or for new work, Mm. they would be easily able to employ a huge number of female choreographers yeah. because they are overrepresented in all the types of award categories up to a certain pay level. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when it drops off. Yeah. Mm. And 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 certainly there's a certain um there's a question also around age. Um mm. and the dance industry in Australia has problematically I think focused on youth. And because it's mistaken interesting dancing with sensuality. It's also mistaken confident white men uh-huh. for people who have something interesting to say oh. over the Is voices <laughs> the voices of women who have been around for a very long time, maybe left the industry to have kids yeah. or who have been creating work on the fringes on the periphery. Yeah. And there are there are a number of dancers that are in their twenties who are receiving grants. And opportunities, and sure, they're creating interesting work. Mm. But there's something also about the opportunities that they've been given above and beyond people who've been around for a lot longer. Yeah. Dance is incredibly ageist in that sense, not just in terms of the practice, but even in terms of um, the voices that we see. Yeah. But I wonder if the idea, or I remember when there was the jump mentoring program and then you come out of the other side and then okay yeah like okay i either get work now or i need to look for not the emerging but the mid career mentoring um but you're supposed to be successful by then 
and self-sustaining. Like you're not supposed to be doing an apprenticeship for your entire career. And so I wonder if we just haven't imagined mm, if there were more actual employment opportunities, then we wouldn't need to buff like stand them up with like uh, some kind of extended apprenticeship or second apprenticeship or something. Yeah, but also the apprenticeship could be as a dancer. You're in your 20s and you're choreographing, <laughs> which is fine. But there are yeah. people like, um, you know, I think of many examples, who have actually danced for a very long time and yeah. moved into choreography. And yeah. I don't think it's either or, no. but are applying for grants. Right. And it's not that grants aren't great. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a bigger question, but it's not it's even just question. the grant system in terms of merit. It's actually also being on the radar of companies in yes. terms of we've got two weeks you want to use a studio yeah um we've got you know we've got two thousand dollars do you want to develop this idea for do you this feel thing? like you've got something to say like are you suffering through anything enough that you've got some kind of artistic output to put into the world um in terms of merit of your artistic voice needing to be heard Oh, I and I'm reflecting that question on myself as well because I actually feel like I can come up with some really cool movement pathways and dancing that will push forward the form, but I'm not going to pretend that that has as much merit or uh, like artistic, creative, insightful, um, transcendent merit as say when I see Benji Ra do a performance. I'm just like, the stage should be theirs. There's God. Uh, but that doesn't mean that i have any less desire to be supported to do the work that i want to do but it means that i have a place to myself in a hierarchy of artistic merit at at a different point in terms of at least in terms of urgency but again here this goes back to the the funding pool is just so small that it should actually be able to support a multitude and of ideas. Maybe I'll audition and for practices. Um, <laughs> you should. Uh, I think everyone has something to say yeah. and everyone has a story to tell. And often we don't, you know, I don't think everyone has the same um, opportunities to tell those stories. And I don't mm. think anything that I have to say to the world is any better than mm. what somebody else has to say. Do I have the tools that I can do that? Yes, I can do that without funding or support. I mean, that's what the podcast was, you know. It's like, actually, I'm interested in this. I can do this. I'll just fund this. But is it... um, Yeah, I, I think those tools are not readily available all the time or the resources or the... um to everybody and I don't I, do, I just don't think I have anything better to say than somebody else you know I actually don't and I've worked as a research on research projects for a number of years and you know people come into those spaces and they're all participating in their world in very different ways and everyone's got something really interesting to say and it's not necessarily that I agree with what they have to say but their perspective or the way that they can enlighten a certain issue or a certain um, system or it's just like, wow, that's such an important offer. And in many respects, it does exist in the world. It's just that the way that it exists in the world or the way that they um, 
position that in the world is not rarefied or that that voice is not given the platform to um, speak. So, yeah, sure, I've got a lot that I could say. And, you know, if anybody's got 100,000 out there, like I'll create some really cool stuff that Mm -hmm. will have, you know, people talking and it will be really important and pressing interventions into, you know, society and art you know like i can spin that and anyone can spin that like i could write a grant for most people's idea and turn it into something but it doesn't mean that my idea is any better than theirs you know it's just that's not to say everyone should be doing dance or that everybody should be doing podcasts or that you know that's not that's not what i'm suggesting but that there are a multitude of mediums and means for people to contribute culturally in the in the the broadest version of what that could mean um and if we consider culture to be you know one of the central pillars of a healthy society then people should be um at least have the means to participate or to contribute or to create within that space as they want um and if there's barriers to that, then that's kind of what I hope in a small way I can try and break down or at least critique or question. There's some barriers that we put in place deliberately, though. Like, I forget which stadium it was, but they seat like all one supporters on one side, all other supporters on the other side, and they have them leave from separate exits and they are they are deliberately a lot of putting, stadiums in the uk <laughs> they're deliberately putting barriers in place so that the culture can't become its full self because people with more power have decided it's a bad idea to just let them punch each other um so it's it's like it's reductive because i agree but i also see that that's exactly the f- the framework that we would usually argue against if, if used upon us Yeah. It's just the tools of cultural production yes. are held by a few. You know, and that's the reality. If you look at the if you want to look at dance funding in Australia, you're talking mm-hmm. talking about five companies. Mm-hmm. You know, three of them are ballet mm-hmm. and different in size, but they're all ballet companies. Two of them are contemporary and very different in discipline and both based in Sydney. And they're also getting less than the um, ballet companies. So, you know, the, the, the tools of cultural production yeah. and the resources are very, um, are held by very few. Mm. And that's power that's held by so few people. And if that was um, a media landscape or if that was, you know, other um, forms of, you know, cultural and idea production. It'd probably be critiqued in different ways. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, to- I totally agree that there has to be limits. Mm. But I think actually our, our, starting, our starting base is that when you look across the arts ecology, mm. those voices that are supported from young dance students whose parents can afford to send them to, to, sco- 
schools to, to classes a week to those that can afford to go to a university or tertiary sector to get the qualifications that are going to help them network and meet the right people to then apply for peer-reviewed grants to then create work that then maybe will be seen and reviewed and you know like the those tools are, are owned by so few that it, 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 there's no quick fix. There's no like, there's no, there's no easy um, solution. But um, I think the push. I, th- I think yeah, there should be. I think yeah. Th- those tools of cultural production, whatever they are need to be far more democratically awarded to awarded again a wrong word because it's like (laughs) you know it it does enter back into the hierarchy but those tools of cultural production you know these are the people that are telling our stories you know like these are the spaces in which we recreate or retell or talk about the world it's only one vision of the world and in such a diverse society as we are, who are these people telling our stories? And as a society, we can only benefit if we have like a space where more people are telling stories. How do you balance with inviting people and delving into dance that are higher in their profile than in their merit? (laughs) Like, is it, you're like, okay, that person would be good, but if someone's like, oh, they're, they have no profile at all then like in an alternate reality you'd be like oh maybe not then like some people um, would not be as interesting as the context that they're speaking for oh absolutely but then it's also about them finding the interesting questions right, yeah see i i find most people interesting um it's just that what they might be seen as interesting for is not the thing that i find interesting about them Oh. Um, and I can't give examples about <laughs> that, but I find it really interesting. For example, that um, there are people that can reveal things about dance as a practice that are not practicing dancers. You know, like interviewing Deborah Jout was such a joy and such a pleasure. Judith Mackerel, like she's written about dance since the eighties. You know, like you can write for the if you're writing for the Guardian and the Independent about dance, and that's your full time job. You've seen a lot of dance. Your insight is going to be really, really special and unique. Um, so I just I think there's there's a range of ways to to kind of get into the practice. Um, look, some people are not great at talking about their practice or about talking about dance um but they can still reveal something really interesting about their life or their perspectives or where they've come from and often it's those things that they reveal that are surprising Mm. that i'm like oh that's really interesting no one else might find it interesting i find it i find it fascinating but other people might find it the most boring bit How how do you deal with your responsibility to be interesting to your audience Oh, look, if people don't want to listen, that's probably okay. Metrics are part of the success of uh, garnering further support as well. Yeah, and look, I would say that the metrics have helped me immensely in terms of 
um, funding. Um, and kind of still surprised me because I'm like, why would, you know, he, you and I like talking about stuff that we find fascinating. But the fact that other people are interested in listening, I'm always like, why are you listening? <laughs> like, I don't understand. What are you listening for? I don't, and, and podcasts and interviews are really hard to ascertain that. Because yeah. it's, it's, if you're doing a performance in front of an audience, you're getting immediate feedback. Mm whether you're performing or whether you're also in the audience, <laughs> you get a sense of the energy in the room. Yeah. You can't read that with a podcast. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. It is, that, it is a very interesting sense of, you know, how do you, I guess I think, do you about think about the interest? And responsibility. Like, do you have a responsibility to platform or de-platform or do you have a responsibility to be interesting or do you have a responsibility to legitimize somebody's practice through your um taking them seriously or like the i also wonder if i have a responsibility to try and find and then also quantify the listener numbers of Wombat Radio and then build them by getting people of prestige and partnerships and all that sort of shit so as to bring great legitimacy to the artists that I have interviewed that have been on there. Yeah. But I usually don't because there's... there's I guess everything's just in a hierarchy of how much time you want to give to each thing. Time and is... Th- <laughs> and and time also is, yeah. how self-subsidized you are with all of your goals. Yeah. I I do deliberately curate as I said before mm. voices of people that are larger in terms of profile mm. with those that um are emerging or of just doing stuff on the fringe. My interest is generally the stuff on the fringe, mm. you know? But I'm also really interested in people that are, you know, have larger, you know, profiles because I think the practices can speak to each other and there's often commonalities. The struggles are often very similar. Mm. Uh, the journeys are often similar while different. Um, so last year I did a season which was kind of around gender, sex, sexuality, um, desire, and in that season, I put in Harper Walters, who's dancing for the Houston Ballet. Mm. And, you know, he's an out and proud black gay man who has this massive social media following, dancing in like high heels and, you know, and it was his publicist that actually approached me and I was like, oh, okay, that's quite interesting. And what he's got to say, I can position with other voices and his profile will also bring attention to other people who um, who have smaller voices um, and who are operating f- like more on the fringe and and I do think my audience crosses over um, in terms of episodes um, but again it's it's really hard to know I mean you can look at the metrics but yeah. it's hard to prove that it's the you know, clicking through to a website is very different than, you know, your RSS feed numbers. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, you know, and page clicks can 
be registered and interpreted in so many different ways. Yeah. How long do they spend on the page is really the, the biggest metric. If they're only on the page for four minutes and they've only they've only really read the page. You know, they haven't they haven't listened to the interview. And that's fine. Yeah. But you know, that's if if in neoliberalism, if that's a metric, how many page hits, then it's it's kind of like it's a little bit of a false false metric. Mm, sounds like a lot of the metrics that we've discussed, like yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you, like, is there any... Well, what's your, like, what's your... Do you just interview the people that you find interesting? Or what's your... Yeah. <laughs> so, apologies to everybody that <laughs> has not no, been no. invited to be interviewed. Well, let's, let's break it down a bit more. <laughs> do you know um, Boyana Kunst? She's an art theorist and she writes. She's a uh, philosopher. I think she's a doctor of philosophy. She wrote um, the one, maybe the artist in capitalism or something like a, that. The title is wrong. She w- spoke to me about her practice as a theorist and a philosopher being just one more. Um, medium that the current artistic discourse could take yeah and that it could get i guess transposed into her words from how the artists had affected her and then that could go back to the artist or on to other people in the world um so a little bit it came from that that better conversations do lead to more useful perhaps or more deviating from the mean insights that are very fragile and can be talked into existence long enough that they can then be danced into existence Mm -hmm. or imagined into existence. And... um, that seemed to be something that I could offer or something that I was already doing. And then it was really nice to do it with people who, uh, like I said before, were experts in their thing that even though I understood the value of, I I didn't feel like either of us could articulate it verbally, but we worked on it together. And then over time, because it's been going Wombat Radio since 2013, so over time, what I found is that the, the 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 human interest story is not as important as almost being a uh, like a co-interrogator of the thing that they say that they're doing, and then when they say when they say what they're doing, I will say back what I think that I've heard. And then that, of course, because I'm not wrapped up in it and it's not an expansive modality that I need to step into, um, it's more concise. And that's either useful to them to realize how I have made it more concise or it's useful to them to realize how I have misunderstood them. And then they can have another go and another go. It's so beautiful too, isn't it, with like artists when they go, oh, I find it quite often actually. They go, oh, that question made me think about that that I haven't been able to mm. I've, I haven't been able to explain that or oh yeah I really had to think about how to this or 
that's what I've been trying to say for months. You know, like I'm writing this grant. I've just had a breakthrough. Or I've seen now that these little parts of my career that actually, you know, there's three components. You've made me like, oh, I've realized that there's, oh, it's so, it's actually so lovely because it means that it's become, um, well, one, it's something they're engaging with. You know, like you're talking about the, like I'm talking about questions that haven't been asked before, or they haven't, you know, but it's like they've had to engage in it. It's forced them to think. Yeah. I love it when they have to like pause. Yeah. A little bit, I'm inviting myself to be a collaborator on their project, which is kind of how I, ex- I in- interact with parties as well. I often invite myself to the party, but I don't get kicked out that often. So I think <laughs> it's beneficial for others. Um, Uh, hmm. I was thinking when you were saying yeah. um, your thing before, there's a company um, just out of Manchester and they have a producer called a criticality producer. Oh. Uh, I just think that's a really nice term, a criticality producer. And it is about kind of thought and thought into action and art right. and that kind of like com- almost completing the loop. Right, yes. Um, I just also love it as a term. What do you do? I'm a criticality <laughs> producer. Oh, what? <laughs> uh, I like to problematize only within the framework of taking responsibility for those problems. I don't think it's very generous to problematize and then leave. Um, and I think that when you're working on a project that is outside of the body, like when I was rebuilding an old Mustang with my dad, the problem is over there. It's not in you. And you you stand with your co-conspirator, collaborator, and you look at the thing. And then when you are it, especially when you're the artist and the dancer and the choreographer and the producer and the mind, blah, 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 then to be able to... Maybe it's another thing that I can offer is that I can take and hold that crying baby for a little while so you can look at it and let it transform into something else mm. before you take it back. Um, or like, or not. Like maybe that's a gross assumption of what I can offer that's, that's beyond actual. But I also think that... Uh, Deep, problematic conversations should be playful. And the reason that they should be playful is because they remind everybody that we are not at war with each other and that we hope that by facing this thing together, we can work out a way that we can be in relationship to it in a way where we don't have to keep lobbing shit at each other over a no man's land, no woman's land, no no non-conforming no person. person's land. Um, like Sarah Scott, who's a, an artist in Australia, she like concurrently twerks and DJs and is doing a philosophy major. And um, I was lucky enough to curate an event where I... Um, asked her to run the dance party that should finish the evening. Uh, But because what she's doing is um, 
somehow she's smart enough to not have to prove how smart she is and to let her her capacity for making a space actually do the thing rather than impress us by how she could articulate it, which she can. And when I finally got to speak to her on the podcast, she was blowing my mind uh, with um, with quotables that from Marx that fit into her DJ set. You know, so I don't. I I also just am addicted to epiphany, <laughs> the hit of realization when you've had these false dichotomies and you've kept them so separated and then you just you just have them like do a little waltz together until they wrap their arms around each other and it becomes a slow dance and then it becomes a kiss and then they merge into one thing that is living together and it feels like work has been done on the physiology of your brain because those ideas somehow have had to coexist mm. in the neurons themselves at the same time it's so easy to to believe your own bullshit and I try to avoid that <laughs> like to go back to the restoring the old Mustang analogy if I did something wrong it wasn't going to start or it was going to blow up like actually when we first started it up to get the fuel flowing through the carburetor it, the carburetor caught fire and I thought I had to get a fire extinguisher and then I was yelled at that I had to turn the car over because that would suck the flame back down into where the flame should be uh, so there's I couldn't have theorized my way out of that situation. Um, so there is also, I feel, an imperative to not call out somebody's um, political problematics, but call out their fantasy that is not working in collaboration with observed or shared reality. Uh, which is also why we've probably spent so much time talking about the majors because possibly one of the biggest fallouts of insularity within what could otherwise become from these funded art institutions is that they're not serving the people because they're not connected to the people. But that's the argument also for any, like any politician. Like why would they know about the public bus system they don't take the bus? <laughs> So I don't, I don't. That's kind of you know going back to that person who I had, you know, talk about his conspiracy theories. Is actually, let's find that commonality and those differences, but let's also put it in a space where that will be tested, because those ideas aren't otherwise tested. If we stay in our own little bubbles and we're only communicating to people of like mind. And policing thought in particular ways that don't allow people to say things that might be um, difficult, then how how do we find spaces to disagree but also challenge and also think, rethink? And quite often I think we are quite prepared to change somebody else's mind. (laughs) And I am a... I mean, don't even like start my partner on this. Like, I am like I'm right, and I want. But how often do I allow the potential mm. to listen to somebody else mm. and have them change my mind, and actually just sit there and just allow that potential, or find those threads between our, 
different views that are similar or those commonalities. Oh, actually, you are this and you are this, but, oh, we both agree on this and we share this and we hold this so deeply and so, like, importantly, Mm -hmm. oh, actually, maybe that's what we should focus on. Mm. And then from there, what can we create together or what, you know, other conversations can we have? Um, That's what I'm kind of really interested in. And I don't think... certainly not an expert at it but that's kind of back to creating space it's like actually being in a space where somebody can change my view that I'm not going in there with the answer that I'm going in there going you know what we're just going to have some conversations and we're going to see what happens Mm. and that's hard to sell to um, big institutions it's also hard to write on a grant Mm. Uh, but you find the language around that and essentially what we're doing is we're just hanging out. Yeah. I hope that you get good at what you practice and if you practice listening, you get better at listening. And if you practice listening with an invitation to your own growth, uh then hopefully that is also disarming and encouraging and contagious. Uh, I also Wait think... Wait see. <laughs> I also feel... Uh, what's the word? Protective over embodied practitioners and physical... Like the arts that takes up residence in somebody's body. And I remember when the 13 rooms came to Sydney and they had a whole bunch of panellists talking about the problematics of putting this artist's work on these just employed bodies. of, But nobody got the embodied up to speak on behalf of the embodied. And I, apart from being a real waste of skill, like forcing someone to retire because they're old when actually they're the most experienced person in the company, it's kind of that level of wasted commercial value. But... Um, the the level of bullshit that can get a, that can be got away with because of the history of the dancer being replaceable and malleable and the training being that the dancer is replaceable and malleable and that they can only become once they have aligned with the vision that the director is projecting I suggest that's not just dancers though as well. That's musicians, that's actors. Everyone's just so replaceable. Yeah. Oh, true. Delivery drivers. Ultimately replaceable. Like that's why delivery or is There's it- not so many people waiting in the wings. <laughs> Whereas in the arts with the limited opportunities, there are so many pe- it, it is a field in which you can say if you don't want the job, there's somebody else there you know we had 300 people at the open call for auditions mm-hmm. you don't want it there's another person there there's not not all careers have that level of competition for the shortage of jobs yeah right and that uh, a field also so driven by passion because mm-hmm. you're certainly not becoming a dancer to be a millionaire oh. and that's why i think in those spaces uh people are more complacent or more not complacent complacent's the wrong word but they i mean the me too movement's a prime example 
certain behaviours have been allowed to flourish in these closed environments because actually to speak out was to risk your precarious employment situation so you put up with bad practice you and and dancers do this all the time they put up with bad practice in terms of how people are treated or the authoritative kind of nature of the space but they also put up with bad practice in terms of what they're being asked to do and how that could damage and affect their body long term because actually to stand up and say i'm not doing this is to create a conflict and you're replaceable yeah I'm not saying it's, you know, but I do think there is that very unique aspect to um, to the arts, that if you don't want to do it, there's somebody else who will do it. Yeah. It's problematic. Uh, yeah. I mean, some things are interesting when they're actually just weird, and some things are problematic when they're actually just fucked. <laughs> and I would say that, like, if you, if, if you, yeah. Mm. But... <laughs> Mainly it's just that I think what physical practitioners do is so inc- makes them so incredibly vulnerable as a daily practice they are re like re-invulnerabilizing themselves um that there is a a duty of care that the individual takes in other jobs that they have now outsourced to the rehearsal director or to the director. And usually, um, not usually, but sometimes that is, it's just, it's unfortunate that it, mm, I've been lucky that in the independent scene in Sydney, it's not as bad as it used to be because there's actually less money for the ego-driven to climb to a position of power. And so you end up making the work on yourself or on yourself and people who you greatly respect and admire. And then everybody's body has a say in how the thing should happen and partake to the point where maybe sometimes you take their advice and they're actually injured and they should not do it. But then they do. I remember once just being like, look, it's totally your call. And the guy's like, yep, I can do it. And then later we found out there was a fracture somewhere in there but it's like you have to to give everybody agency somehow sometimes takes away the amount of responsibility that you should take as the person who's in charge and asking them to relinquish their agency so that you can make the artwork it's it's uh yeah i mean there's there's an unspoken hierarchy as well within implicit in all these relationships spoken or not you know even companies are like oh we've got an you know level playing you know, field in terms of all the dancers, you know, bullshit, <laughs> you know, absolute bullshit. The choreographer in many instances, um, even within the independent thing, will have certain dancers that they gravitate to mm. and within the piece, mm. even if it's only like three dancers, there'll yeah, be certain. I think then you you start undermining the work if you place. I, w- I wonder about this, for example, like, I think there is conduct. I think the arts is a special place and the arts as an industry should be very aware of its conduct in the example that it sets for everybody else. Uh, At the same time, I think that 
if it operates by the same rules as um, Burger King, then it may produce dance as good as the Burger King burgers, for example. So I wonder about this like idea that everybody gets a chance flipping the burgers, everybody gets a chance filling the drinks. I don't think egalitarianism leads in like artistic output or like stage time or whatever. I think the metrics are really Oh yeah, hard. yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm also not talking against a hierarchy. I do think um what is interesting though, leaving hierarchy aside, is that arts as institutions um, and creative institutions have the capacity to reimagine systems. Yeah, the responsibility. Instead of, but, but I'm talking like company structures here yeah. as well. You know, instead of employing a Burger King model, which they do and often badly, <laughs> you know, like why is it that Rio Tinto is doing better in some respects in terms of diversity yeah. and its accountability to its shareholders? Yeah than some of these other companies are doing, both accountability to audiences, to funders, sponsors, and in terms of diversity metrics. You know, why is it that... Maybe they've got a product that's in demand. Yeah, if only they did, though. <laughs> but, do, you know, yeah, like, arts yeah, yeah. has the capacity to reimagine these systems, but instead they employ systems that are often not the best placed, I don't think. Yeah. Um, to deliver what they are delivering mm. but instead we're using again metrics which are very neoliberal in their outlook mm. and systems of and structures i'm not even talking beyond hierarchy here i think you know that a hierarchy can be within that system yeah, some kind of meritocracy yeah or a point appointment of role like you're the director you're not more important than us but we need that job done from the outside and so we're going to consult you or something like this. All the arts then in its creativity um, decides to do things so differently in a way that just does not make any sense because they're reimagining a wheel, it's a true. wheel that was built 50 years ago and yeah. has been rebuilt by the company another 50 times, but now they're going to rebuild it again. And yeah. a lot of institutions do this mm. and it doesn't serve anybody. So... While I think there needs to be a responsiveness to it, reimagining possibilities and futures, and I think the arts is the best place to do that, both on a social level but also on an internal institutional level, mm. they're not necessarily the best at doing it. And, it, in, in, and in fact, often um, pretty shit at it, <laughs> you know, just really not great at it. And then they'll get a new artistic director or a new board or a new chair new CEO mm. and then they'll reimagine it again but it's not actually they haven't they haven't come about it creatively they're just mm. actually reinventing the same wheel any yeah someone might argue that um, the effort should be put into imagining what the art could be that they're producing wow <laughs> and where it is presented and who does it and who it's for that's revolutionary mm, rather than the structure of the company but in in people's defense the people who end up in these positions are the one who are seen as the safest bet to buy boards that appoint these people. And also those people are working incredibly hard yeah. and you could never actually take away from anybody within no. those positions. They are, And they are still working on the smell of an oily rag. 
Yes, yeah, with you the know, output to income With ratio. the output, yeah. with the number of people they employ, with the size of the beast of the yeah. institution, the rentals, all that kind of stuff, they are still working in the same systems. Mm. Well, that's my parents, the back for the day. Oh, cute. Do you want to finish up? We can finish up. With an epiphany? I don't really have an epiphany. <laughs> a mic drop? <laughs> um, Some kind of... I guess what I like to ask is what is something that you try and remember when you're in the midst of trying to get a podcast out or delivering a paper or getting all the backlash via emails? Like what is the little kernel of wisdom? The kernel of wisdom. Certainly I haven't taken any risk personally. Okay. You know, and I think actually, if we want to look at the privileges that I have, you know, and sure, I navigate stuff, but, you know, I'm immensely privileged and I'm not, you know, uh, even if I'm putting myself out there, I'm sure enough of myself that I know that a bit of backlash or whatever is nothing compared to what people are facing on a daily level. Mm. You know, I can pay my bills. Mm. Um, I can get to where I want to get to. I'm, you know, I'm incredibly privileged. I'm certainly not high paid. Um, but, so, pro- but through choice rather than through yeah, absolutely. disadvantage. You know, yeah. and I'm not navigating homelessness. Mm. Um, and I have friends in this city that are. Um, you're working on £7.80, you know, like that's it's 15 bucks Australian, mm. you know, and the rent's the same. You know, the coffee is $6 as opposed to, you know, 4 whatever. You know, it's not that the cost of living here is cheaper, you know. So, the the risk, you know, I, I'm just reminded of how, you know, lucky I am to be able to pursue the projects that I want to pursue and be driven by my interests. Um, and I think they are you know, the commonality around that is about social justice. It's about inclusion. It's about access. Um, so, so, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't ever really complain about, you know, what I'm doing. It's, a, it's an immense privilege and I don't, I don't lose a lot, you know, like if somebody, if there's a backlash about, you know, something that I've written, that people don't like for different reasons or they've got different complaints, you know, like actually in the scheme of things, it's really, it's really nothing, you know, like I'm not in a company where I'm told, you know, you know, or asked to do horrific things, you know, just because that's the only way I'm going to keep my job. You know, I'm fiercely independent in that sense, you know, it's very hard to get me to do anything that I don't want to do. Um, and that's again from a position of privilege and it is good to remember that stuff quite often Um, and it's you know certainly if we want to talk about hierarchy I would say that the majority of the people I'm interviewing too are coming from different levels of um, privilege Mm. we all have different levels of privilege Um, and yeah it's really good to be reminded of of that and why why it matters you know some days I do wonder like well, what's it, like, why am I doing this you know 
sure people listen to it and all that kind of stuff. But if it, if it loses the ability to connect with people, mm-hmm. or if it loses the ability to um, help um, foster a host or conversation or change thought or um, to spark imaginations, if it loses that ability, then, then kind of what's what's the point? Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many other things that I could do that could do that. Um, and people that do that all the day, all all the time, you know, in other professions, you know, it doesn't have to be arts. It's just, that's just the medium that I choose to use. But there's other ways that mm. you can do exactly the same thing. If it's social work or teaching, or yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that really answers your question, but it's it's a very it's a very privileged thing to do to work in the arts, irrespective of how shit it can be and how low the pay is and all those struggles that I think yeah deserve critique yeah I think that I'm reminded of that even in relationship to the kind of the high the high level the high functioning level of the people that I get to spend my time with who have time to spend with me Mm. because people that function on such a high level in most other industries are far too busy (laughs) yeah um, and then, then the flip side of people who are not functioning so well just because they the way they operate is not the way society is deeming that they should operate. Yeah, they that is taxing on them, and, and then everybody, all the ripples around them, and also the people's willingness and desire to talk mm. is also because there's not always those opportunities to spend time mm. where you are on the platform to talk about your work. You might have stage space, you might have tours and stuff, but to actually stop and reflect. Um, I think for many people that's quite actually cathartic Mm. and it's quite, you know, I've done interviews with people um, in other settings around HIV or chemsex and drug use and body image and what have you. And even in those settings, you're asking questions that allow people the time to reflect mm. upon their own existence and how they fit in the world. And that in itself is quite beautiful, even in terms of the context of really difficult, hard conversations, really profound. Um, and I find that with the, you know, the best podcast interviews I hear out there are those ones where people actually just feel like they have the space to talk quite freely and openly um, and let go of the self-censor, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of can be hardest with dancers and people working for big companies. Yeah. To really let go of that self-censor. I've done a few um, time capsule podcasts where I've interviewed a few people who are in positions that means that they wouldn't be able to let go of the censor directors and things like that and promise that it won't be released until after they leave that position. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'm really excited for what those things are going to be like to listen to in 10 years when this person has become this figurehead and then you'll get to hear what was, what was actually going on that we couldn't have access to, which is a shame because it dehumanizes people into their positions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always say um, at the start of my interviews, like before we kind of start, is you know, if there's anything you say that you want me to cut out afterwards or whatever, I can. Mm. 
and kind of some of those permissions allow people to speak more freely because they're not second-guessing everything. It's not stilted. Mm. In a sense, they're not second-guessing everything they have to say. And then very rarely they actually say, oh, can you cut that bit out? Sometimes. Mm. It's happened a few times, quite a few times. <laughs> um, but it, it, was, it would generally be quite... It would make sense. It would be quite reasonable. Um, yeah. It's an interesting thing in terms of those time capsules as well because sometimes I do think about how these interviews um, become and already are important archives in terms of people's practice Mm. and people use them in that kind of way. One of the things that I raised money for last year um, is to get all the interviews transcribed, mainly around access. Mm -hmm. Because um, obviously podcasts are not accessible to deaf audiences, um, and the wealth and the depth of conversations for some of the artists, I think, are you know like sh- should be you know accessible. Again, it costs a lot of money for what are often self-funded and self-driven projects yeah. and time. Um, but also in terms of the resource that that thing can become, and I know you know a number of. You know, colleges and schools and stuff using the content because actually if they're learning about blah blah artist then you send them a podcast that they can read or uh, listen to yeah. and it's different you know it's like a video or something there's different ways of engaging with the practice beyond like here's another book um, and many of these people are not in books of course that's the other thing yeah. you know it's just like an online version of what used to be in a newspaper, you know, and they might have 500 words written about them as a little profile piece about an upcoming show. Yeah, which is, is a description of the set, maybe. Yeah. 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 But even before even before a review where they would do the little, like, 20 questions. So, what do you have on Saturday for breakfast? How do you keep so fit? What book are you reading at the moment? You know, like... What book are you reading at the moment? What book am I reading at the moment? Um, oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. It's a book of short stories, and I can't remember what it's called. It's next to my bed. Great. It's very good. <laughs> Look it up. You should all get it. <laughs> uh, um, let's wrap it. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Thanks.